All right, today, this morning, guys, we are looking at uh, Nehemiah chapter 8. So would you please turn in your Bibles to Nehemiah chapter 8. Uh, we're not going to make our way through the entire chapter today, um, but you can begin certainly turning there. And as, as you're getting there, I'll, I'll just say a couple things. I find Nehemiah 8 to be rather exciting. Uh, and, and the reason why I think it's so exciting to me is because I think in so many ways, Nehemiah 8 explains the blueprint for ministry here at Calvary. The things we do, the reasons we do them, sort of the philosophy of our ministry, so many of those things are found here in Nehemiah chapter 8. And so we're going to take some time and, and point those out. You may recall that the, the sort of the life verse of Calvary Chapel, um, this particular one as well as the others, I'm sure, is Acts chapter 2. And in Acts chapter 2, we read this. It says, They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship, to the breaking of the bread and the prayers, and all came upon every soul. And many wonders and signs are being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those that were being saved. And so, as you see in that passage there, the early church, as well as Calvary here, we are devoted to four things. The first is teaching. And you see that located, the apostles' teaching. Second is fellowship. The third is this idea of the breaking of the bread or communion. And then that four, fourth point would be, and to prayer. And notice verse 47. The result of all of this is that the Lord does the adding. And the Lord adds to their number daily those that were being saved. And you know, unfortunately, I think sometimes as followers of Christ, we can sometimes get things sort of all twisted around. And I think a lot of churches tend to do that as well. And church movements sometimes can get things all twisted. And so our goal as a body of believers, it's not to draw big crowds and it's not to impress people with our wit or our intellect or engaging stories or things like that. And we're not trying to put on some kind of a circus that's going to entertain people. What we're simply trying to do is this. Run this race while we remain here upon the earth and be a place where people can, number one, share life together, Two, learn and understand His Word. Three, recognize and celebrate the death and resurrection of Christ. And then fourthly, commune with Him. And as we do those things, we are confident that the Lord will take care of growing us. Whether that's internally, as we grow as Christians, or externally, as we see others come to know Him as well. So that's our model for ministry. And this is what we seek to follow as a church. So that everything we do and think about doing is kind of run through that prism. Will this enable us to know the Word better? Will this enable us to fellowship more deeply? Will this enable us to celebrate and proclaim the death and resurrection of Christ? And will this enable us to enhance our relationship with Him? And so the model is there in Scripture. And the model works. And so it seems to me we'd be wise to follow that model. And so... As I said, I think Nehemiah 8 is a clear demonstration of what Acts chapter 2 is teaching. And so again, the context of things in Nehemiah chapter 8, excuse me, Nehemiah chapter 8, the context of things is this, that the walls of the city of Jerusalem have been rebuilt, that Nehemiah had received word of sort of the, the state of things in Jerusalem, that he made his way 800 miles to Jerusalem, oversaw this kind of this building project, that God had stirred his heart you're fine, you're comfortable, 800 miles away, but I want you to go, and I want you to do this. And God stirred his heart, he went to the, to the emperor, whatever, the king, 
And he said, hey, could I have a leave of absence? The guy said, about how long do you think you need? 12 years should do. And so for 12 years, he goes and he serves there in Jerusalem. And he helps to rebuild the city and the walls and then restore the city. That's what took the bulk of the time. And we saw that under his leadership and with God's blessing, the people were able to rebuild the walls that couldn't be rebuilt in 100 years. He's able to do that. They're able to do that in just two months. And so God is in all of this. And then they begin to devote themselves, as we saw last week, to the houses and the buildings and where are the people going to live and are they going to be able to go back to where sort of their ancestors were before the captivity. And step by step, they're in this particular process. And, and what we're seeing is this. Now, as we move on to the latter part of the book, everything is in place for God to do what God intended to do. And that is have the people in place in a safe place where they can now worship and serve their Lord. And so everything is where they need to do. And so this is what we read in verse 1. So go ahead and turn to verse 1. I'm going to take a sip of water. It says, Now all the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate. And they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. And so Ezra the priest, he brought the law before the assembly, both men and women, and all who could understand what they heard on the first day of the seventh month. And he read from it, facing the square before the water gate, from early morning until midday, in the presence of the men and the women and those who could understand. And the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. And Ezra the scribe, he stood on a wooden platform that they made for the purpose. And beside him stood Mattathiah, Shema, Aniah, Uriah, Hilkiah, and Maseiah on his right hand, and Padiah, Mishael, Mekajah, Hashem, Hashbadana, Zechariah and Meshulam on his left. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people. And as he opened it, all the people stood. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God. And all the people answered, Amen, Amen, lifting up their hands. And they bowed their heads and they worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Also, Jeshua, Benai, Sherebiah, Jamin, Akub, Shabbatai, Hodiah, Messiah, Kilita, Azariah, Josebed, Hanan, Peliah, the Levites, that's who they, those group are, they helped the people to understand the law while the people remained in their places. They read from the book, from the law of God, clearly, and they gave the sense so that the people understood what they were reading. Nehemiah chapter one, uh, 8, verses 1-8. through eight. Now, when we consider chapter 3, I mentioned to you, the book itself mentioned to you, that there were 12 gates that entered in and out of the city. One of those gates was, as uh, we saw the water gate, which is referenced again here now in chapter 8. And as we learned at that time, water, many times in the Scripture, is symbolic or it represents the Word of God in our lives. The Apostle Paul, you may recall, in Ephesians chapter 5, he likens water, uh, the Word of God to water, when he says that we are to be washed in the water of the Word. And so, with that idea, and we explained it more when we were back in Nehemiah chapter 3, with that idea, it's interesting and it's fitting that the people would gather as one man at the water gate so that they could hear the word of the Lord. Notice also, they instruct Ezra. They tell Ezra. Ezra's the teacher. And they find him and they say, hey you, get up and get out here. Teach us the word of God. Or they say, bring the book of the law of Moses and read it to us. So Ezra 1, 8, 1 Excuse me, Nehemiah 8.1 says, they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded. 
Now, the book of the law of Moses would be the first five books in our Bibles. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. That's the book of the law of Moses. And they say to him, hey, would you come and you bring it? And again, I find it interesting that the people go to Ezra and say, hey, read the law to us. Now, I'm not sure exactly how this happened, but if they did go to his door and knock on it and said, we're dying to hear the word, and Saturday's not going to be here for a few more days, can you read it to us now and teach it to us now that Ezra was probably delighted. Wow, the people want to hear me teach the Word. They want to hear me read it to them. And so the people here are demonstrating, notice, they're hungry for the Word of God. And, and as we're going to see, they're hungry to obey the Word of God as well. Nobody dragging them off to church. I suspect in this room, there are some of you that were dragged here this morning. Probably young people, maybe a husband or a wife, you know, this kind of thing. Maybe you were bribed. We'll go to the diner after. They got big portions. It'll be great. One way or another, you were dragged off to church here, but these guys weren't dragged to church. They went and found the pastor, if you will, and they said, look, man, we're ready. What do you got for us? Bring us a portion of the Word. And now, beginning in Nehemiah chapter 8, what we're going to see, and it goes from chapter 8 to chapter 12, we're going to see that the lead character of our studies is going to change. So in the first eight chapters, seven chapters, it's been Nehemiah. The book's been about him, what he's doing, how he's getting the people involved and all that. But in chapter 8 through chapter 12, it's going to transition to a new lead character, the fellow that I've already mentioned to you, this guy by the name of Ezra. Now we've learned a bit, a bit about Ezra already, back when we were studying the book of Ezra. And you may recall that the book of Ezra has ten chapters. And it's believed Ezra wrote all ten of those chapters, but he as a person isn't found in all ten of those chapters. As a matter of fact, Ezra isn't, doesn't come on the scene until chapter 7 of that book. And the first six chapters of Ezra, they're devoted to looking at the work and the leadership primarily of Joshua and Zerubbabel. Joshua and Zerubbabel, the first six chapters of the book. They're the key figures. Joshua leads spiritually as the high priest. Zerubbabel leads sort of politically as the governor of the people. Then you may recall that there's a gap between uh, Ezra chapter 6 and Ezra chapter 7 of about 60 years, and then suddenly Ezra comes on the scene. We, suggest, we uh, suspect, I should say, that uh, Joshua and Zerubbabel died, uh, passed off the scene, and now Ezra comes on the scene. And you may recall that Ezra served as both a political leader as well as being a spiritual leader. And so I thought it would be helpful for us to consider kind of a brief timeline of where we are and what's been going on here. And so you recall that the book of Ezra, it begins with the children of Israel coming back, being granted permission to return from captivity. So they've been taken all over the world into the Babylonian Empire, and now they're able to go back to Jerusalem and Judah, and Ezra is all about rebuilding the temple. Well, as you look at Ezra chapter 1, verse 1, it actually provides for us the date that that occurs. And so Ezra 1.1 reads, in the first year of Cyrus, the king of Persia, that the word of the Lord might be um, fulfilled, and so on. It goes on from there. But it says, in the first year of Cyrus, the king. So the idea is this decree is that any of the Jews that want to go back, you can go back to that land. They're still technically captives, subjects, if you will, of the empire, but they're able to go back to their land and kind of rebuild things and live there uh, somewhat peacefully. Well, we know that the first year of Cyrus was 538 B.C. And that's when this decree goes forth that they can return. By 536 B.C., 
nearly 50,000 Jews have returned to the land. So we have a little bit of a timeline you can begin seeing here. And once they get there, the people almost immediately, they begin to get to work. And they're rebuilding the things that really matter. And again, you don't need a temple building to have temple sacrifices. Much of the, the work that takes place at the temple is outside of the building itself. And so the first thing that they needed to have was a brazen altar. Because the brazen altar was the place that the sacrifice uh, was performed. And so though a full-blown working temple would be nice to have, it wasn't necessary to have for the people to worship God. And so as soon as they get there, they begin to rebuild uh, the necessary things like the brazen altar. Within a year, 535 B.C., they begin building the temple building itself. But sadly, that work project, it hit a, a bunch of roadblocks and they stopped and then they didn't start up again for another 15 years. And so we see in the books of Haggai, the book of Zechariah, them saying, look, you started great. You can finish this great. And so they do. And that takes place in 516 B.C. And so from 536 to 516 B.C., all of that takes place in the first six chapters of the book of Ezra. Then we have a break of about 60 years, and then Ezra comes on the scene. And when Ezra comes on the scene, it's one page in our Bibles. It's 60 years later. During that 60 years later, the people are worshiping at the temple, doing what they're supposed to be doing, but sadly, their hearts had drifted from the Lord. And you've probably been in that place where your heart was in a different place with the Lord five years ago, ten years ago. And so these guys, they were doing the things, they were performing the rituals, but their hearts had drifted. And so Ezra comes on the scene. Ezra is sent to them to teach them. And it's not about rituals that we perform, but it's about the condition of your heart with the Lord. And so we know a lot about Ezra. We know that Ezra was a great man of the Lord. When we were studying Ezra, I mentioned that in Jewish tradition, Ezra is second only to Moses as far as the great men of the Lord. Even before Abraham is even mentioned, in, in the eyes of some, Ezra is the second of the greatest of the heroes of the Jewish people, second to Moses. Ezra was a man that was committed to the Word of God. Ezra is the one that restored the book of the law to the people of Israel. Tradition tells us that Ezra is the one that created the synagogue system so that people that live, Jews that live scattered all over the world, that couldn't get back to the temple every Saturday morning, that they could go to these places of the synagogue and they could be taught the Word of God. The sacrifices wouldn't be, take place there, but that they could be taught the Word of God. The tradition tells us Ezra is the one that said, you know what, the people need to learn the Word of God and they need a place to do that. And that the place to do that was in these synagogues. Ezra is the one that introduced the idea of giving each of these synagogues their own copy of the Word of God. And so the scribes, Ezra, which was one of them, the leader of them, began to write out the Word of God. Can you imagine? Began to write out the Word of God and send it off to these synagogues so that each synagogue in every town that they happened to be would have a copy of the Word of God that their rabbis could read from and teach the people. Ezra is the one that created the Pharisee or the system of Pharisees. Now, we think, well, that's not good because in our minds, Pharisees are bad or whatever. It's a term we use. Uh, you're so judgmental. You're a Pharisee or whatever. But when they started, the Pharisees were rock solid. They were experts in the Word of God whose job it was to teach other people this is what the Word of God teaches. So these guys were great. And Ezra was the one who came up with that particular system. 
So Ezra is, I wrote in my notes, Ezra's the man. He's awesome. You know, if we could have more of these guys living in our lives, I think we'd have a great world that we live in here. Ezra's the man. And Ezra comes on the scene, if we go back up to our timeline, he comes on the scene around 460 B.C. And he begins to teach the people and guide the people and lead the people. Now, while he's doing that down at the temple area, you recall that the walls of the city lay in ruin. And the people, they're getting by in Jerusalem, but they're not really thriving as a city as God had intended because of the broken down walls, because of the constant threat of attack from the surrounding people and the surrounding nations. They were trying to live in a city without walls, and that's just not what you did back then. And so as you may recall, as now we're moving into the beginning of the book of Nehemiah, there were some folks that reach out to Nehemiah, and they would say, you know what, There's, it's not good here in Jerusalem. And so they send some folks to Susa, 800 miles away, and they essentially say to Nehemiah, hey, is there anything you, you can do? Can you help us out in some way or another? And Nehemiah, through some prayer, essentially he says, I'll be right there. And so he goes and he talks to the king and he says, I'm going to need this break so I can go and help my people. And he returns and almost immediately he begins work on the walls of the city. And as we see, that's in 444 B.C. You can see that there on the timeline. So this is sort of a picture of where we are at the start of Ezra to where we are now in this book of Nehemiah. And the point that I want to make with you, and you're like, man, that took a long time to make that point, brother. It did, but where are you going to go? It's early in the morning. The diner doesn't open for a little while. And so Ezra and Nehemiah, those guys are contemporaries of one another. Again, Ezra doesn't start in the book of Ezra until the seventh chapter. So Ezra and Nehemiah are contemporaries of one another. And I think sometimes, just as we read our Bibles, we, we forget or we fail to put all the pieces together. And so Ezra's here. And now we move on, and now we're going to look at Nehemiah, and a little while we'll look at you know, Esther or something like that, and we don't see how they all sort of fit. And that's my intention by sharing that with you. So Nehemiah was the lead character in this book, chapters 1 through 7. Ezra will be the lead character in this book, chapters 8 through 12. And you know, I bet these guys were totally okay with that. Joshua and Zerubbabel, key figures in Ezra 1 through 6. Ezra, chapters 7 through 10. Here, Nehemiah, chapters 1 through 7. Ezra, chapters 8 through 12. My point is this, that we're all just pieces in the Lord's kind, if you want to call it, cosmic chess game. You know, some people would be really offended. I'm Nehemiah. I'm the leader. Don't you see all the stuff that I've accomplished? Who are you to think now you can take charge and start teaching the people and leading the people? Some people would be offended by that. But you don't see that at all in Nehemiah. You don't see it at all in Ezra. You didn't see it with Joshua. You didn't see it with Zerubbabel. Because these guys just realize they are pieces of the puzzle, so to speak. And Lord, what do you need me to do? And what role can I play? And I value that and I appreciate that. And I think, again, that's part of the philosophy of ministry here. We're just servants of the Lord. And if the Lord wants to choose to use us or exalt us in one way or another, as long as He's the one that is magnified in this whole process, that's what we're about. And so now it's Ezra's turn. Ezra the priest, or maybe to keep the chess uh, analogy going, the bishop. Ezra the bishop. Isn't there a bishop on a chess board? Okay, I'll stick with checkers. I understand. So anyway, the people come to him and they say, hey, read to us from the law. Now, if you're a priest or a pastor or a ministry leader or even a mom or a dad, and the people in your care 
come to you and say, hey, read to us from the Bible, then you know God is at work. Because the people are hungry for it. And God is stirring these people and God is giving them a desire to hear the Word of the Lord. And so, as we see, with one heart and one mind, the people gather and they essentially say, hey, read to us the Word. Which, as we said, Ezra, no doubt, is delighted to do. Now look at verse 2. It says, So Ezra the priest, he brought the law before the assembly, both men and women and all who could understand what they heard on the first day of the seventh month. First day of the seventh month. Now the first day of the seventh month was the start of the Jews' civil calendar. Now the Jews kind of confusing, but the Jews have a number of calendars that they work from. And you hear that and you say, well, that's just weird. It's not really that weird. Because in our society, we have our normal calendar. I don't know what we call that, the normal one. But we have like our fiscal calendars. We have the school year calendar and all of that. So if somebody mentions to you the school year calendar, that's not crazy to you. You understand. And similarly with the Jews, they had a variety of calendars that they worked from. They had a religious calendar. But they also had a civil calendar. And the seventh month of the Jewish calendar is the month of Tishri. But that also is the first month of the civil calendar. So Tishri is the seventh month of the religious calendar, but the first month in the civil calendar. It falls right around September and October in our calendar. And it's during that month that the Jews celebrate holidays like Rosh Hashanah, which is the Jewish New Year. And so they celebrate the Jewish New Year during the month of September. And so here we are. We are on the first day, if you will, of the first month, and the people are gathering to celebrate it by having the Word of God read to them. Seems to me like a great way to start out your new year. Beginning with a reminder of just who God is, what God desires, what God has done, what God desires to do. And I would suggest to you, not only is it a great way to start our year, but it's a great way to start our weeks as well. Just beginning each week by gathering together with the saints, the church, to hear the Word of God read and explained. Just a time, if you will, before everything gets going again on Monday morning, to put everything back into focus and remind ourselves of who God is, what God has done, what God wants to accomplish. And so if it's a great way to start your year that way, and it's a great way to start your week that way, well then surely it must be a great way to start your day as well. Time set apart, first thing in the morning when it's still quiet, before the kids are awake, if you have them, and the pace of things just begins to go crazy, just for you to kind of sit with the Lord and sit with His Word and let it minister to you. Time to commune with Him and just say, you know what, Lord, there's a lot going on today. Some, for some reason, I don't even know how it happened. It just started on my iPad, and I read my Bible on my iPad. On my iPad at 7 a.m., I get a text and it says this, you have a busy day today. Here's all the events you have. And I'm like, shut up. You know what I mean? I don't want to hear from you. You know, you're bothered. Who are you? You know, and who gave you authority to text me? And this thing is just text me that I have a busy day. And so, Lord, you know what? Before the day gets going, I just want to be in your presence. And I want to invite you into the midst of all of it. And so you just have that time before it all gets started to meet with Him. Let Him speak to you. And put everything back into the proper perspective as you go, get ready to go about your day. And so we see here, the people gather. They gather as one, it says. And they say, Ezra, read to us. Notice, it says, they say, bring the book of the law. It's possible that the only copy of Scriptures in existence at this time is this particular book that he is reading from. Which is probably why Ezra was so much in favor of getting copies of it made and sent out to the various places. 
And so he comes and he takes the copy of the Scriptures and he stands in front of the assembled people and then look at verse 3. It says he begins to read it. And he read to it, or from it I should say, facing the square before the water gate from early morning until midday in the presence of the men and women and those that had understanding. Standing there, Ezra, before the people, he begins to read. Notice, from early morning until midday. That's about six hours of Bible reading. And so I hear the comments from you folks. I hear the comments. It's too long, man. You, you took forty-five, six minutes today. These guys got together for six hours. So I think that's the goal we're shooting for. Alright? But for six hours, they read Genesis and Exodus. Most of us would be like, right on, good stuff. Leviticus, ooh, i got to take my bathroom visit now. You know, Numbers is when you hit the coffee you know, to, to come back. But they're reading Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And you, you can cover some ground in six hours. But notice this though. It says in verse 3 that the people were attentive to the reading of the Word. So Ezra's not up there doing calisthenics. He's not up there dancing or anything that's going to draw attention to him. He's not up there entertaining the people. He's reading the Word of God to them. And the people are hungry for the Word of God. They're hungry to receive it. Remember, they're the ones that asked for the Word to be read to them. Something happens when we come expectant to the Word of God, to hear from God. And God faithfully shows up. And so when we come to church, we come to our Bible time, we go to our small group and we say, you know what, Lord, I want to hear from you. Now, I'll admit, I sit down, I have to say this, I'm grateful that over the years I've sort of developed a habit of meeting with the Lord, taking time alone with the Lord, and sometimes you just have to establish those good habits in our lives. But a negative of that is sometimes I sit down, I read, and at the end, I don't even know what I read. I just kind of went through, check off, yay, I read my thing for the day. I'm on path to or on track to read through the Bible in a year or something like that. And so one of the things that I have found is before I just dive into the text, is just take a moment or two. It doesn't have to be something crazy long, but just say, all right, Lord, here we go. And Lord, I want to hear from you. And I recognize that this is the book that is living and active. And the same way that it spoke to people thousands of years ago, it can speak to me. So God, just come and minister to my heart. Just get myself ready to receive the Word. Something happens when we come to hear the Word of God and we are expectant. And what happens is that God shows up. Charles Spurgeon, he shared the story of a conversation that he had with a young, a young preacher. I hear the angels. I hear the angels. A conversation he had with a young preacher. Now, Charles Spurgeon was used greatly by the Lord. If you're not familiar with Charles Spurgeon, pick up a biography of his life. Charles Spurgeon, as a preacher, he saw many converted as a result of God working through his teaching ministry. And this particular young man, a student of Spurgeon's, came to him and he had noticed in his own life he wasn't seeing the same amount of conversions. And so he approached Spurgeon and he, he said something to this effect. He said, uh, Dr. Spurgeon, he said, I wish that I would see conversions as a result of my preaching as you do. And to that, Charles Spurgeon responded, young man, do you expect to see conversions each time you stand up to preach the Word? And the man honestly responded, and he said, well, no, I don't. And he said, Spurgeon responded to him, and that's why you don't see conversions. Something happens when we come to the Word of God expectant. So whether it's as a preacher or the student or simply as we sit first thing in the morning, when you come expecting the Word of God to do something, it does something. The Word of God is holy. The Word of God is a living 
an active book. The Word of God, it says, essentially, it says, it is sharp like a scalpel, that it's able to do surgery in the deepest places of our hearts. And so, as we see with these guys here in the book and in our own lives, come expectant and ask God to reveal Himself in His will to you as you study it. Because He will faithfully and definitely answer a prayer like that. Now notice also, it says that the Word was read, verse 3 again, to the men and women and those who could understand. Now those who could understand refers to the children. Now there's no definitive age given as to when it's appropriate for the children sort of to gather with the adults here. No, it doesn't say, you know, when they hit 12, then you let them in. Or when they hit this grade, then you let them in here. But what it speaks of is an, a period of cognitive development. When they can understand. And if the children could understand what was being read, and later we're going to see what was being explained, then they stayed. But it would have done no good for the kids and their parents to attend the reading of the Word if all they were hearing is Charlie Brown's teacher. You remember Charlie Brown's teacher? Womp, 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 womp. You're not getting much out of that. And if that's all that the kids are picking up, then it doesn't make any sense to have them in that particular setting. And this is the reason why here at Calvary, again, I pointed to how Nehemiah 8, we try to model our ministry in so many ways off of, is this is the reason why we have created a children's program here at Calvary for our kids. Now certainly, you bring young kids, you're welcome to have your kids with you if you want to in the service. We don't forbid it. But if they're getting nothing out of it and they're becoming a distraction to you and everyone that is around them, then it seems to me that the better place for them, place for them is to be in a classroom where they can learn the Word of God at their level with the good and creative teachers that we have that have a heart to present the Word of God and the material in a way that they can understand. And then you, without your kids squirming all over the place and climbing on top of you and all these things, you're afforded a few moments where you can just sit and you can receive the Word. Or as it says in verse 3, where your ears can be attentive to the book. And so that's why we have what we have. That's the philosophy of our ministry. Not every church does it that way, but that's how we do it. Notice, if you will, also in verse 4, it says that every effort is made to create the conditions where the people can receive the Word. And so it says in verse 4 that they build Ezra a wooden platform from which he can stand up front, uh, high up in front of the people, so that everyone would be able to see him and everyone would be able to hear him as his voice kind of projects from that higher place. Years ago, my wife and I, we went to Quincy, Massachusetts. Anybody been there? It's the birthplace of... Dunkin' Donuts is in Quincy, Massachusetts. Maybe presidents as well, but the important things, Dunkin' Donuts. So my wife and I, we went on a little vacation. We're up there near Quincy, Massachusetts, uh, which is where John Adams and John Quincy Adams, the two presidents, where they were born and raised and buried and, and so on. And the bodies of those two men and their wives as well, they lay in a basement crypt in uh, the basement of the United First Parish Church they're in the city of Quincy. It's just outside of Boston, not too far from Boston. And at the time of our trip, I was about 35. We, uh, I was a history teacher, and so a trip to a historical city like that, we're required, we take the oath as history teachers, required to go and see all of the historic sites and things like that. And my wife was delighted to tag along as I'm, wow, look how interesting. You know, and she's like, it's whatever. You know, and so since we were going into this building to see where these two presidents and their wives' bodies were sort of laid in this particular crypt, we figured, you know what, let's go see the historical church as well. They began building this church in the 1700s, and it was completed in early 1800s, and so it's, just, it's still working today. Unfortunately, they don't preach the gospel today. 
It's a Unitarian church. But at that time, it was this church that was up and running and, and all of that, and uh, we were excited to go in. So we went in, we paid for the tour. And on the tour, we were brought into, if you will, the sanctuary. And in the sanctuary, it's a relatively small church, long, small building. But in the sanctuary, there's this pulpit up in the front. And the pulpit area is raised up about six or eight feet, and it actually comes out over the audience. Uh, and some people sit like this, looking up at it. Other people a little bit further back, you know, they just kind of look a little bit up. Talk about sitting under the Word. I mean, that's what they're doing. They're literally sitting under the Word. Now, the, when we walked in, the first time I took glance at that, I'm looking at this pulpit coming out of, over the people here. I'll tell you, I was offended. I was like, man, look at these arrogant, prideful people that think they're better than the congregation. You know, there they are up top there and the little peons underneath them or something like that. I was really offended about it. But as the guy began to share, like, this is why they did it or whatever, I probably brought it up. I was like, who do these arrogant snobs think they are? And he's like, no, sir, they're not arrogant snobs. They're nice people. And he explained to me that a building constructed in the early 1800s, being up front centered and out over the congregation like that is pretty much the only way you can amplify your voice to the entire congregation at that particular time. So this wasn't designed to exalt the preacher, but it was designed to amplify the Word of God so that the people could hear, hear the Word of God. Now that makes a lot more sense. And I needed to repent of my bad attitude at that particular moment. And my wife jabbed me, I told you, or whatever. Because she knows best, it seems. My point is this. No, she does. She does. <laughs> my point is this. That we should do, and that's what Ezra and those guys are doing. They build them a platform to stand and read and teach the Word of God. That we should do everything we practically can so that God's Word can have its greatest effect. And that's exactly what they're doing there. So in our day, we bring in an amplification system or we utilize technology or we try to create a comfortable environment for us to gather in and to hear the Word of God. But the most important thing we can do, we want to do everything we can to make sure the Word of God can go forth unhindered. But the most important thing that we can do so that the Word of God can have its greatest effect is prepare our own hearts. And that is to come to God and say, you know, all right, Lord, I want to hear from you. And I understand, and, and I, I think this should be our prayer. I understand, Lord, that there are going to be things that I'm going to hear about you from your word that aren't going to sit real well with my flesh. That I'm going to naturally rebel against that and say, well, that doesn't apply to these days. Or, hey, look, I gave you 95 things, Lord. I think I can have a few things of my own or something like that. There are going to be things that we hear that we just don't like, that we're not comfortable with. But we come to the Lord in honesty and say, all right, Lord, I know I'm about to hear those things. Would you give me a heart to not only hear the word this morning, but also to respond in obedience to the word this morning? And as you come and you prepare your heart, either with a prayer like that or just sort of the meditation of your heart in that condition, God will speak to you. The New Testament book of James, it declares this. It says, as you know, many of you know, it's not the hearer of the word that is blessed, but the doer of the word. So it's not just that you know what the Bible says or you've heard the Bible read, but that you take what you've heard and you put that into practice. And so we pray that we come ready to learn and put into practice all of that which the Lord gives to us. That's the path of blessing. Again, look at James 1.25. Being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. And so we're doers of the Word, not just hearers. Let's go on to verse 5. It says, Now Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people, 
And as he opened it, all the people stood. So here's Ezra. He opens the Word. He begins to read the Word. And the people, they demonstrate their great respect for the Word by standing to hear it read. One of my favorite Bible teachers to listen to is Damian Kyle. Damian's the pastor of Calvary Chapel Modesto. And we were blessed to, to hear Damian share a couple times this week at the pastor's conference. And one of the things that Damian does, whether he's teaching at the pastor's conference or back at his home church or somewhere else, but every time that he begins his study and they're going to read the passage that they're about to read, he has everyone in the congregation, he said, would you stand with me as we read the Word of God? And so the people stand. He taught us Psalm 119 this week. And we were all very nervous when he mentioned that. As you know, there's 176 verses in Psalm 119. Please, don't read the whole thing at one time, you know, or whatever. And he, he was gracious. He only read nine or ten verses. But the whole idea is it's an act designed to communicate honor and respect for the Word of God and for the God of the Word. It's not a practice we do here. Maybe we should. You know, I remember as a kid how we were instructed to stand when our principal would come in. Sister so-and-so would come into the room. And if you didn't stand, you got a ruler. But nonetheless, uh, she would. we learn, you know, here comes this important person. We think, they told us she was. And so she came in the room, and so we all stood. You know, even today, if somebody comes into the office that doesn't work in the office, you know, it's not normally coming in and out, and they come in, it just feels rude to just sit there. It's almost disrespectful. You know, you get up, you say hello, shake their hand or whatever, offer them a place to sit. And so here are these guys. They're standing, showing their respect for the Word. And it says, the assembly stands to hear it read. Verse 6, And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God of all the people. And the people answered, Amen, Amen. Lifting up their hands, they bowed their heads and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Fascinating. Ezra doesn't even begin reading. And the people are already responding to what God is doing. Ezra begins, it says, by blessing the Lord. That's essentially something like this. Lord, you're just so amazing. You're so good. You're so incredible. And we're gathered here and we're excited to be here. Amen, amen. And people falling down. And they're like, I didn't even do anything yet. And you know, the altar call is having great success already. But the people begin to respond. Yes, Lord, you are good. That's amen. Agreeing. You are good. You are merciful. Amen, Lord. Amen, Lord. The people, it says, they lift their hands, declare amen. Then they fall on their faces, bowing and worshiping the Lord with their faces to the ground. And so this is the Pentecostal church service going on here. The people are responding. God has been prompting them. They've come expectant and prepared to be obedient to God. And God is meeting them. He's drawing them to Himself. And the result is worship. And that's what is supposed to happen when we come into the presence of the Lord. That He is to be magnified and we are to be minimized. That He's to be glorified. And that's exactly what the people are doing. It continues, verse 7, and it lists the, the names, I read them earlier, of the Levites. This group of men whose job it would be to help the people to understand the law while the people remained in their places. So the scenario was something like this. Ezra is up front on this platform and he's reading from the book of the law. He's reading it probably in sections. We might say maybe a chapter at a time or a paragraph at a time. In, in our context, he's going through it verse by verse. And verse by verse, he's presenting this material to the people. And then these guys, they're down on the ground and they're with groups of people and they're explaining it to those people. And so I suspect, they're, well, they're certainly not on the platform, but they're down amongst the people there in smaller groups of people and they're saying to them, okay, he just read the first chapter of Genesis. Does anybody have any questions? 
And of course, good wait time because nobody raised their hand right away. And he waits a little bit of time and someone says, yeah, I have a question. What's going on? <laughs> I'm confused. And he said, all right, well, let me explain it to you here. And so one by one, he begins to explain, answer the questions. As the passage says, they help the people to understand the Word of God. The Word of God is meant to be understood. And it's not meant to be understood by a select few. There are some church movements that want to retain control of their understanding, the understanding of the Word of God, because then they can control the congregation. And this is what the Word of God means. But the Word of God is meant to be understood by all of us. And so when we come to the Word of God, and if we walk out of here, and we're like, I have no idea what that passage just said. And sometimes I read it, and I have no idea what it said either. But for the most part, it's meant to be understood very clear, very out in front for us. So we come to church, and our goal is to walk out of here and saying, I know what it says, I know what it means for my life, and now i just got to do the hard work of doing it. And that's up to you. But my job is to help you understand what it says. And your job is to respond as the Lord is leading. In the pre-Protestant Reformation days, Protestant Reformation is Calvin and Luther and some of those others. In the pre-Protestant Reformation days, there were many that tried to introduce reforms of their own to the universal church, or that's what the word Catholic means, universal. That they tried to introduce reforms to the universal church. And one of them, the biggest one of them, was to translate the Bible into the language of the people. Their thinking was essentially, why keep the Bible in Latin when only a few of the very educated, the priests of the day, even knew the language? Why keep it in that language when nobody knows that particular language? Their thinking was translated into the language of the people and then mass produce it so that all the people can have a copy for themselves. Johann Gutenberg and the Gutenberg Press, is that who did it? Okay, a couple of you, yeah, Brian vigorously saying yes, so I'm good with this. But his whole purpose in the printing press was not to produce novels for the beach or something like that. His whole purpose was to mass produce the Bible, the Word of God in the language of the people so that all of us could read it for ourselves and understand it for ourselves. I mentioned earlier that the ministry of Calvary Chapel is patterned on the example we see here in Nehemiah 8. And here's another one. Present the Word of God and then explain it simply. As a matter of fact, one of the mottos of Calvary Chapel is simply teaching the Word simply. And I don't think that's grammatically correct as far as English language is concerned, but I do believe it's the sentiment that the sentiment is exactly right. The Word of God is meant to be known. The Word of God is meant to be understood so that it can be applied and lived out. The Word is not some coded mystery that only the very few can come to discover, but rather it's the words of eternal life, the entrance of which brings light and life. It says in Psalm 119, the entrance of your word gives light. It gives understanding to the simple. I think the greatest compliment that I can receive, I imagine any Bible teacher can receive on a Sunday morning, Wednesday night, or something like that is, you know what, I get it. It just all makes sense. I think that's the greatest compliment we can receive. And we have a lot of new folks that come in and out of here or come in here and stay, and we're delighted to have them. And after about a month or so of just first coming here from some other tradition, they say things like, I get it, it just makes sense. And that's an indicator to me that we're doing what we're supposed to be doing. And that is just simply teaching the Bible simply. And so whether you're a Sunday school teacher or a home fellowship leader or you volunteer in a ministry, maybe the youth or whatever it may be, just simply explaining, or you're just simply explaining something to a friend. Be reminded 
that your charge is not to impress folks with your knowledge. It's not to show your superior intellect or your great charm. But your job is to help that person or those people understand the Word of God. Simply teaching the Bible simply. Now verse 8 says, they read from the book, from the law of God clearly. And they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. Notice it says, they read from the book clearly. That's the goal. Bringing the people to the place where they understand what the Word of God is saying to them. Again, as I said, what you choose to do with that afterwards is up to you. Now there's a number of reasons why these Levites need to explain to the people, help them understand what is being read. The first one is that the Scriptures were written in Hebrew. And as exiles in a foreign land for over a hundred years, many of them no longer understood Hebrew. But now they were uh, familiar with Aramaic. So kind of the same way that some of your grandparents may know Italian or uh, some other language from the old country. And you sort of like, I have no idea what you're talking about, Grandma. You know, you seem excited and you put food on the table, you know, and so something with food. And you get excited, but you don't really know what she's talking about. Well, similarly, these folks, yeah, they heard of Hebrew. They recognized that it was Hebrew, but they didn't really know what it was. And so these Levites are going to kind of, if you will, just simply translate it to them, explain it uh, to them. A second reason why is because we know that the understanding of the Word isn't just something we do with our heads, but it's something that we have to do in our hearts as well. And so the job of these teachers, and teachers even to this day, is to help the people understand not just intellectually what was being read, but to spiritually discern what was being read as well. So these guys are helping in that regard. And then thirdly, for the vast majority of people in this audience, this is likely the first time they ever sat under the Word of God being read. And so they're going to be asking things like, all right, I know we read about this about an hour ago. What's a wave offering again? Because they'd never heard of a wave offering except for an hour ago. And now that it's coming back up in the book of Leviticus, they need an explanation. They don't know who Cain and Abel are. And so that was when we first started this morning. I wasn't even awake then. And you read about Cain and Abel. Can you remind me again who they are? So everything that they are learning is new to them. And these men are there to help keep track of all the pieces and and put them in their right place. Now, that being said, so I'm making the point here that here's a group of people that don't really know the Word of God. But that being said, even the more seasoned saints, some people call them old, but even the more seasoned saints need to be taught as well. And you may have read a passage ten times through and still miss the point that the Lord is trying to convey. And as I said, the Word is living and active. And every time we come to it, we can trust that the Lord has something for us. So even if it's an old verse, yeah, I know what that verse means. The Lord may have something for you new today with that particular verse. So all of us need to sit and have the Word of God explained to us clearly. Notice also, what are they helping people to understand? It talks about the book of the law, but it says so that the people understood the reading. They're not there to hear the preacher's favorite topic. They're not there to hear the preacher's opinion on everything under the sun, but they're there to hear the Word of God. And so that's what the Lord has put the teacher in place to teach and to help the people understand. And that's a high calling. And again, regardless of where or who you teach, we should always approach the Word of God and that role with a great deal of respect. Continuing, verse 9. Nehemiah, who was governor, some versions say Tirshatha, that means governor, and Ezra the priest and scribe and the Levites who taught the people, they said to all the people, this is the day, excuse me, this day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep, for all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. So the people hear the book of the law, 
and they begin to weep and mourn. Now, the, the text doesn't tell us why, what's causing them to weep and mourn. It could be that they're weeping in joy. Hey, we're back in the land. Here we are gathered as a, a people. We're hearing the Word of God read. Just months ago, we were in a foreign land. You know, so maybe that's why they're weeping. I would, I would think, though, more likely, it's because the Word of God has cut their hearts. That they've come into God's presence and they realize, you know, we fall so incredibly short of the holiness of this God that we have a relationship with Him. We don't measure up to the Word of God that we're hearing read. I've already heard ten times this morning how I violated that. And I had no idea that I violated that. And so God used that to cut their hearts. And that means that the Word of God is doing what it is supposed to be doing. The Apostle Paul says this, all Scripture is God-breathed. It's useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in all righteousness. The Word of God is supposed to rebuke us. It's supposed to correct us and then train us. And too often, we come to the Word of God to find a word to correct our friend or to co correct our coworker, or that we can yell at the TV when we see what all those people are doing. That's a violation of the Word. We, we get a word for other people, but the Word of God is meant to correct us. And our job is to come to the Word and let it correct us. And then, to reference the idea that Jesus points out in the New Testament, then we will be able to see clearly to remove the speck from our brother's eye. But first, the work's got to be done in us. And here we see the Word of God is having its effect. It's cutting the people. It's revealing to them how far they are from measuring up to the standard of God. It's revealing to the people their need. Essentially, at the end of this reading session, explaining session, they're saying to themselves this, I don't measure up. And judgment is inevitable. No wonder they're weeping and mourning. But praise the Lord, the Bible doesn't leave us there, does it? The plan of God doesn't leave us there. Again, to quote the Apostle Paul, he says in Galatians chapter 3, he says that the law is our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. Some of your versions translate guardian, it's our tutor or it's our schoolmaster. It's a term in the first century that the readers would have known. So whether it's a guardian, a tutor, a schoolmaster, that was a slave whose job it was to educate the son of the slave owner. A slave essentially in that day had no rights. But as the teacher of this young person, they had complete and total control over that young person. So if the slave said, young man, you're staying in from recess to work extra, well, that's what the slave owner's kid had to do. If the slave said to the kid, yeah, don't even think about watching TV tonight. It won't be invented for another couple thousand years. But regardless, don't even think about watching TV tonight because you have extra work that you're going to do tonight to catch up. You've been falling behind. Well, even though he's a slave, he has the authority to speak into that kid's life in that particular way, and the kid had to respond and do what he was told. But at some point in time, that relationship was going to change completely as the kid grew and eventually became a man. In fact, one day, it was very likely where that kid would actually become the master of that particular slave who had, was formerly his teacher. And so Paul's point is this, that the law, like the slave, has a job to do. And for the case of the law, that is to bring you and I to the place where we are broken. That is to bring us to the place where we see that we are sinners and that because of that sin, we will be condemned. And again, the law is designed to reveal this, just simply this. This is the whole purpose of the law. You don't measure up. 
and you never will. And judgment is inevitable. That's not very pleasant, is it? The law's one and only purpose is to reveal our need. It's not to get us to live according to a certain standard, as if somehow that will appease God. It's not to create sort of this system so that self-righteously we can follow it and say, look how good I'm doing to keep these commandments and God then is obligated to respond because you did your part sort of thing. The whole purpose of the law is to reveal our need and then to point to Christ as the only one that can meet that need. And so here are the people, they're mourning. That's good, actually. But notice what Nehemiah and Ezra and the Levites tell them. They say, no, no, stop mourning. Today's not meant to be a day of mourning. I'll read the verse. Nehemiah the governor and the others, Ezra the priest, Levites, they said, no, no, this day is holy to the Lord. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people were weeping. Mourning is good. Being broken by the Word is wonderful. There's nothing like coming into the presence of the Lord and having Him speak to you from the Word and it bringing a heavy conviction upon you where you know, I was in the presence of God just then. Nothing like that. But God's purpose is not to bring us to the place of permanent mourning. He may bring us there for a season, but His purpose is not to bring us there permanently. At some point, we're to kind of turn that corner and walk in the way of hope. There's two emotions which pretty much feel exactly the same way. Lousy. And you, maybe you've been there. They're conviction and condemnation. Both conviction and condemnation cause you to feel like a loser. Both conviction and con- condemnation cause you to feel like you've blown it and you're the worst sinner that has ever walked the planet. But the big difference between conviction and condemnation is where they leave you. Conviction leaves you looking to God for a remedy. Condemnation leaves you running from God and hiding. Conviction comes from the Holy Spirit. Condemnation comes from the devil. Conviction says you blew it, but there's hope. Condemnation says you blew it and there is no hope. Think of the New Testament. Compare the responses of Peter and Judas. You remember both of them had encounters with Jesus on the day of His trial and what would go on to be His crucifixion. And both men, on that day, they blew it big time. Peter, despite his great boastings that he would never forsake the Lord, did so. And as the text says, he did so with swearing and cursing. Judas betrayed his master and sold him into the hands of the religious leaders for the price of a slave. Both of those men blew it. Both of those men went away from that experience feeling lousy. But one of those men, Peter, fell on his face before God, weeping and repenting of his sin. The other, Judas, he went out and he hanged himself. Feeling bad about our sin is good. But God's intent is that that is is to be met with hope. And if our sense of conviction is greater than the sense that God has made a way, then we have crossed the line into a place that the Lord never intended. At least not for those of us that know the Lord. Our knowledge of our sin should never be bigger than our knowledge of Jesus as our Savior. Again, to quote John Newton, Amazing Grace, I say again because we've quoted him before in the past, we are great sinners, but He is a great Savior. And the people here, they were weeping because they realized that both they and their fathers had been refusing to obey the Word of God. And their tears of repentance testify to their acknowledgement of that sin and turning from it. So here is this congregation. They were applying the Word of God to their lives and they were judging their lives by the standard of the Word of God. And the Lord sees that. 
And in God's eyes, sin judged is sin put away. And so Nehemiah and the others say to him, look, you don't need to mourn. You don't need to weep. I think we could add, you don't need to mourn anymore. You don't need to weep anymore because your sin has been put away. Instead, they tell them, verse uh, 10, they say, go your way. Eat the fat. Drink the sweet wine. Send portions to anyone who has nothing ready for this day is holy to the Lord. And so the people are exhorted to celebrate this day as a feast and to do so with joy and gladness. Notice they were to invite their friends and their family over to come celebrate with them. They were to find those that had little and to share with them because this was the time for rejoicing for all the people of Israel. You know, sometimes it seems to me that we want to suffer over our sin a little bit. We've blown it. We know it. And we just don't feel right confessing it as sin and then coming right back in the church like nothing happened. So we feel that we sort of have to persecute ourselves a little bit or purge ourselves of our bad deed or prove to God, I really am sorry, Lord, and I'm going to show you how sorry I am or something like that. And so we mourn and weep just to establish how sorry we are. So the question then is, how long should we mourn over our sin? I think the answer is as simple as this, until you experience the assurance of cleansing. The Word of God says, if we confess our sin, that God is faithful and just, He'll forgive us of our sin and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. We need to avoid the temptation to try and help God in the forgiveness process. We need to avoid the temptation to feel the need to pay for our own sins because there's only one that has paid our debt. And it's to Him that we are to look and receive His payment on our behalf. So allow God to convict you, but look to Him for forgiveness and then receive His promise of washing and cleansing. And then when you have, then you can rejoice in the awesome reality that though you are a great sinner, He's a greater Savior. And we continue with these last verses today. So the Levites calmed all the people saying, Be quiet. This day is holy. Do not be grieved. And all the people went their way to eat and to drink and to send portions and to make great rejoicing because they had understood the words that were declared to them. So you look at that. The people heard the word. The people received instruction. The people had it explained to them clearly. And then they went forth and did it. And what does that testify? It testifies this. The word of God works. The Word of God has its intended effect. If you come open and expectant, it changes you. And so here, they are sent with the Word of God on their way, ready to put these things in practice. For those of us that went to the pastor's conference I mentioned earlier, we were blessed to hear Pastor Damien Kyle. And Pastor uh, Kyle Damien, he talked to us on uh, Psalm 119. Actually, he, he taught two studies on it because it's such a long chapter. And as you know, 176 verses in the chapter. Every one of those verses, with the exception of three of them, speak in one way or another about the Word of God. Using words like the judgments of God or the statutes of God or the decrees of God and so on. Every verse speaks of, if you will, the Word of God. The psalm is a psalm about the purpose and the work of the Word of God in our lives. And I was so incredibly blessed to sit and listen as Pastor Damien taught that particular message. And so this week what we have done is we've made the message available to you guys as well. And so it's available on our app and you can just go there and look up, uh, what's it, Will? Messages, guest messages or something like that. 
and Damien's message will be there. But we're also going to email it to each of you as well. And I want to encourage you, during this next week, and you know, the weather's getting nice, take a walk, put some earphones on or something. Just take some time to listen to those two messages. Because coming through, as it came through to me and the other guys, and I'm sure it'll come to you, through to you as well, is just how sufficient the Word of God really is for a life of godliness. And through the Word of God, the power of God comes. That we might live, that we might walk in holiness. It's all revealed to us as followers of Jesus. And so, you know what? Maybe it's been a little while since you just sat with the Word. By yourself. With the Word. Not even listening to other people read the Word to you. Or or, uh, explain the Word to you. But you just sitting with the Word of God. Maybe you've never actually begun a daily Bible reading process. But I encourage you. We have some folks that would love to talk with you about that and sort of explain what they do and what you can do. But we all need to get some time, not just on Sunday mornings, but by ourselves every day to sit with the Word, to sit with the Psalms, to sit with the Gospels, to come to the Word of God expecting and asking God to prepare our hearts to receive it. And believe me, as each one of us does that, on a daily basis, the Lord is going to bless that powerfully. And He'll bless you powerfully. And so I want to encourage you in that. Watch Him bless you and work in your heart as you commit yourself to His Word. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for the blessing of the Word of God. Lord, for us to be able to sit and to receive confident, Lord, in who You are, what You want to do. Lord, we take great delight in that. And so Lord, I thank You. And I pray for my friends here. I pray for myself. Lord God, that the Word of God would be alive in our hearts. And Lord, that we would do the, the necessary task of setting that time apart to just come and sit and listen to what it is You want to speak to us. And, and Lord, I pray just for a special blessing as we do that. Maybe we commit to that in a fresh way. Lord, beginning uh, this Memorial Day. Lord, I ask that You would pour out Your Spirit in a fresh way on us. That the Word of God would come alive, Lord. That we would experience, oh my gosh, I've never seen that. I haven't felt that in so long, Lord. You're so faithful. That we would discover more of Your nature. Lord, we would see Your goodness, Your kindness, Your mercy, Your holiness, Your righteousness. Lord, all of these things would just cause our hearts to stir and that we'd want to worship You in a greater way. So Lord, bless us as a church. Bless your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.